Um, so it is a great, it's a great big social event that the music is. I mean, you, you said it well, it's just kind of the lubricant and it kind of gets the, gets the conversation going. As far as the healing aspect, I mean, it's been very therapeutic for me and I think a lot of people do play it for that reason. I mean, it, it you know, it's something that maybe, um, can't really put a finger on, but you know, if you're not doing it, you miss it. Uh, and, and it's kind of easier to say what's not working when you're not doing it than what it does when you're doing it. Maybe you notice the absence of it. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh. And in October of 2015, I was asked to give the opening keynote at the annual conference of the West Virginia Library Association. The conference was being held at a lodge at the Canaan Valley State Park Resort. And on our way there, my wife Paul and I decided to stop in Morgantown, West Virginia, to interview Chris Haddix. Chris is a professor of environmental studies at West Virginia University. He's also a skilled old-time fiddle player. And he had a story to tell me about a blind violin maker named Tommy Doolittle who lived in West Virginia during the early decades of the 20th century. Here, then, is my interview with Chris Haddix. My name is Chris Haddix, and we are in Morgantown, West Virginia right now uh, at West Virginia University, which is where I teach. I teach coursework on uh, a variety of sustainability-related topics, uh, mostly geared towards the built environment, so kind of energy efficiency, green building, uh, some community development. Um, I'm also developing research on the impacts of the physical facility on the delivery of health care, especially in a rural in a rural setting. So what is it about that clinic, the, the design of it, the, you know, the physicality of it that may influence uh, how well the doctors and nurses and other healthcare staff can do their jobs and how how the patients perceive the quality of health care they're receiving based on you know the box that they're receiving it in. Um, so I've been here for about seven years I think is what we said and before that I was the director of a Habitat for Humanity affiliate here in, in Morgantown. I did that for about nine and a half years so I developed affordable housing. So my transition to the university has been fairly natural. I'm kind of doing, um, you know, following up on, on some of the stuff. I did. I was a lot more hands-on with Habitat. This is a lot more kind of theoretical at this point. At the same time, you're an old-time fiddler, kind of like I am, and you've been doing it for a while. And I've always seen the fiddle and uh, the music associated with it as this kind of... Uh, social almost lubrication this mm -hmm. thing that brings together a lot of people in the community in glenville where i used to live and you know that festival real well i used to love to watch the uh, the square dance right. where they block off the street and have a square dance and here you would have the town doctor or the town lawyer in the same set same square as the guy who swept up the hardware store right you know i mean just different people with different abilities and mm -hmm. and things and that music brought everyone together and they all knew what to do within the context of that you know, um, grapevine twist or whatever they were doing. Right. So, what what are your thoughts on that? Uh, just in terms of the social role and healing properties, if that is such, 
to this music in a culture like West Virginia? Oh, I, I, I've, you know, I'm kind of right on the same page with you. I mean, I've even with Habitat, we would have uh, when we would get a floor up on a house that more than one occasion we would have a little square dance with the work groups that were there, and they, you know, these were groups from high school kids from New Jersey or wherever, and like, well, this is fun. You know, do you guys do this all the time? Like, well, it's kind of this, you know, kind of a tradition with, you know, getting buildings up that the square dance piece, you know, often followed, uh, you know, the barn raising or the corn husking or whatever. I didn't grow up on a farm, so I didn't, you know, firsthand experience any of that, but just that tradition that the dance was kind of the culmination of this social, you know, this activity that we were doing and, and we follow up with a dance. I mean, I've used the fiddle or just singing to open meetings to I'd much rather sit there and talk to somebody, you know, and get to know them. And first thing, oh, you know, at this place where I was was not far. I grew up in southern West Virginia in Logan, and I was in Lincoln County. And, uh, you know, so somebody would tell me where they were from. And the first thing that pops into mind is, do I know a musician from that area? You know, do I know a song from that area? And we'd start talking about that. Um, and, you know, you you've, you experience it. You sit down at a jam and you play one tune and then you talk for 20 minutes and then you play another tune and you talk for 20 minutes. So it's uh, and oftentimes it's about the tune. Right. But it's about who played it and the family. Oh, I knew them or, you know, those people are, you know, we got the same people. Um, so it is a great it's a great big social event that the music is. I mean, you, you said it well. It's just kind of the lubricant. It kind of gets the gets the conversation going as far as the healing aspect i mean it's been very therapeutic for me and i think a lot of people do play it for that reason i mean it, it you know it's something that maybe um can't really put a finger on but you know if you're not doing it you miss it uh and and it's kind of easier to say what's not working when you're not doing it than what it does when you're doing it maybe you notice the absence of it well, we were just up at uh, Canaan Valley and gave a talk to librarians, and there was a, a little group that played before us, these, the, a couple, and they were just great musicians, the tallest musicians I've ever seen. They were mm -hmm. young, and they were both women and the man were six two, six three. Oh wow! And uh, and so they they were playing, and uh, the uh, Heather. I happened to mention I played fiddle, so she said, "Well, would you come up and play the fiddle? At least play a tune with Paula who plays banjo." And I thought, of, you know, well, what would be the simplest tune that they could back up and would know? And I said, Soldier's Joy. And they, yeah, okay, you know, it's in D. And they got it. And so I went up and played Soldier's Joy. And um, as soon as I was done, I, we walked over and one of the librarians came up and said, my grandfather was a fiddler and that was his favorite tune. Oh, yeah. And you just knew you had just made this connection. Right, right. And they, she looked at you differently. And then when I gave my talk, I mean, I was among people where music is a really important part of their lives, mm -hmm. this folk music. And, of course, uh, this radio series is looking at music at the highest end of the symphonic world and then to this kind of music that's part of the um, almost the currency, the social currency mm -hmm. of these communities in the mountains. So um, why don't we go back to you? We're talking about you're from Logan County. Mm -hmm. And uh, – so was there any music in your family? How does this come to you, this interest? Yeah, so um, there was. There there wasn't this type of music that I experienced firsthand in my family. Um, my first instrument was the piano. And as a six-year-old, I just we had one, and my you know, brother and sister played piano, and, and I just was drawn to it and started playing on my own and then you know, wound up taking lessons. My dad grew up in, in Roan County, in Kanawha County, 
and he he played a little bit, but he was a singer. He he was just a ham, you know. I mean, he was always singing, and he was the, you know Mister Everything in high school and on the football team and the valedictorian and the lead of the thespian club, and you know, I mean, he just kind of did it all. So he was always singing, and my uncle, uh, his older brother, was was the musician in the family, and Uncle Jim. I didn't get to know him really until my dad died. Uh, my dad was the only one to go to college. And and there was always a little bit of, I think, Uncle Jim kind of felt like his younger brother had kind of one-upped him. You know, Uncle Jim was a heavy equipment operator, crane operator, very talented guy at that. But he just, that we didn't see him a whole lot. And there was, I've always sensed a little bit of tension between them over that. Now my aunt, not, none of that. We saw her all the time. But I remember my Uncle Jim coming over. Once when I was probably seven or eight, because we were still living in this this other house that we lived in when I was younger, and he had his guitar and he would sing. Um, he wasn't really singing so much traditional stuff. He really liked kind of early country music. Um, he had Delmore Brothers and Blue Sky Boys and that kind of stuff, and then up even into kind of jazz and 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 kind of swing stuff. But he had this baritone voice that you know I can just still hear to this day, and he. he played the guitar beautifully and and he was a character you know i mean he was a in-your-face kind of guy and boy it just you know blew me away um so that was kind of my first exposure i think to somebody that was really good now aunt jenny wilson was in logan and i knew of her i knew her uh, roger her grandson knew him well roger bryant so i kind of had other people around it wasn't really till i got to college that I started playing traditional music. So I picked up the guitar in the interim, and I would sing just kind of John Denver, Neil Young, or John, whatever, you know, whatever my brother and sister were listening to. So give me a sense of Logan County. Logan mm-hmm. County's down in the coal fields pretty mm-hmm. much, isn't it? So it's a kind of a different place in in West Virginia than certainly up here in Morgantown or out in the, the Panhandle. Yeah. So tell me a little bit what that was like and how how important was coal mining at that time? Well, I mean, coal mining was, was huge. My, we weren't in the coal business. My dad was a dentist. You know, he grew up poor as dirt and figured out uh, his, his dad was an oil and gas line contractor. So they were in and out of money all the time, mostly out as as a you know figure out from the family. And he went to the military, and they said you'd be a good dentist, and so he went to dental school. You know, I mean, that's kind of how it happened. But he moved to Logan, bought a practice in Logan, and. Um, so I had a lot of friends that were whose families were in the coal business, and I saw it kind of taper off as I started getting into high school. His my dad's dental practice started waning. You know, he he went from a solo practice to a had a couple of associates and twice as many chairs, and you know, very busy practice, and then kind of faded off. And that was all directly, you know, uh, reflection of the coal uh, industry. Um, but lot, Logan's a lot of trucks on the road, lots of trucks on the road. You know, it was deep mining at that point. Some strip mining, we weren't doing the mountaintop removal. I spent a lot of time in the woods. I lived right uh, just down the river from chief Logan state park. So I could actually go across the road and go up into the mountains and just hike up into the park. I mean, I spent all my time in chief Logan state park hiking around old mine works up there. I mean, a lot of the trails were, you know, went around old mining works. So I was very well, very aware of the coal industry and the impacts, but it was still a pretty wild place. You, know, you go down there now. Took my son down there this summer, and, and you know the mountaintop removal piece is really quite dramatic and has altered the landscape in ways that are 
kind of hard to imagine if you've never if you've never seen it. Uh, my sister still lives there. She's a dentist in Logan, and the economy is very different. Um, you know, it's just a very different place than it was. But I loved it, and uh, we did not have a corridor through there, part of the Appalachian Regional Commission Highway System, like you guys went on to Elkins today. You know, we do have a corridor down there now. So, so the downtown is is very different than it was when I was growing up. Everything's been exported out to the corridor and to the strip malls and those types of things. And so the music, traditional music, I know I'm, I'm jumping around That's right here. That's right. But the traditional music of that area, I mean, I, I'm thinking of, Nim, was it Nimrod, Nimrod Workman? Workman? Yeah, and, over yeah. in Mingo County. Yeah. yeah. So was there a fiddle a tradition much there you know, among coal miners? Um, there was, and I didn't really find out about it till later. I didn't take up the fiddle till much later in life. And so I got to Morgantown, got into college. Um, I lived beside a guy from Boone County whose dad was a very good flat picker. And and my friend Joe played the dobro, and so that was my first exposure. You know, I'd seen the Darlin family on Andy Griffith, and that was kind of my, I, you know, that was my bluegrass experience. And so Joe turned me on to flat picking and introduced me to his dad when they would come to Morgantown. And, and then, you know, it was I couldn't get enough at that point. So I started to learn how to flat pick and started buying Norman Blake albums and all that, you know, just kind of started digging in and figuring out what I could find. Um, so a funny, a funny story. I was home. I, I bought a Dobro. I was home one summer from college and, and this all kind of ties back into the family's musical heritage. So I was sitting there in our dining room. We had a Zenith, you know, console stereo and I had a Norman Blake record on and it was the girl I left in sunny Tennessee. And so I'm sitting there playing out on the Dobro. My dad walks by and he sticks his head into the dining room and he starts singing it. And I look at him and I'm like, how do you know this song? And he's like, oh, grandma had that on a 78. I listened to that all the time as a kid. And so I've got that 78 now. I've got her record player. You know, so it was just, it's like, oh, wow. You know, my dad knows this stuff. You know, <laughs> And Uncle Jim must know this stuff. So they grew up, you know, it, it wasn't this new stuff, you know, new old stuff that was unique to me. So that was kind of a neat thing, you know, between me and my dad. And then as I got to talk to my uncle more, oh, yeah, gosh, you know, I was saying he'd pick the guitar up and sing it. And it was just, it wasn't anything special to him. I mean, they, they sang it and he moved on to sing other stuff. So that was kind of a, um, a neat piece. Took up the fiddle when I was 30. Uh, How'd that happen? Uh, just I, my mom growing up, she had gotten shuffled around from home to home as a kid and she had, um, I really don't know the relation, but they called him Granddaddy Rose. And he wasn't her grandfather, but he was just some guy on the farm they called Granddaddy Rose. This was down around in Giles County, Virginia. And she told me that, I mean, I played, you know, whatever, the guitar and the piano, and I could kind of sit down and pick up anything and play it. And she's like, oh, we ought to get Granddaddy Rose's fiddle. I think... Uh, my cousin still had Lou Gray still has that. And Lou Gray was a cousin, you know, that my mom's cousin I'd seen once in my life or something. Our families weren't really close. So she called Lou Gray uh, in Norfolk and said, Lou, this is Jackie. Is Granddaddy Rose's fiddle still anywhere? And Lou Gray said, Jackie, I literally just gave that to a music teacher down the street, high school music teacher, probably two months ago. I mean, this had been years since they'd seen each other. So she was, I'm sure he would give it back if, you know, and so we called him 
and he thought, yes, your family should have this. I'll give it back, you know, no problem at all. And mom said, I'll buy it. No, you don't need to buy it. Just it stays in the family. So I've drove down to Norfolk and got it, took it to Charleston, had some guy fix it up and started trying to figure out how to play it. Uh, and then I met Jerry Milnes because I could not play it. I could I could not even bow an open string and make it sound good. So, and who's Jerry Mill? So Jerry was the folk life director down at Augusta Heritage Festival in Elkins. And I just had seen Jerry, and I thought, I've got to go take a class. I mean, I could figure out notes, but I had no idea what to do with the bow. It was so foreign to me. And I, it took me probably about three really good starts and stops. I mean, I would just dig into it and try and try and try, and then I'd get fed up with it and put it away, and then I'd get it out again. And in the interim, somebody loaned me a mandolin, and then I figured out a bunch of tunes on the mandolin, and then I could go figure them out on the fiddle, but I still didn't know how to bow it. So I went down and took a class with Jerry, and he kind of opened the opened the mystery box on, on how to bow. Yeah. And then, so from that, back to the fiddling in Logan, um, there was a guy named Sherman Lawson, who I never met, um, but Sherman had known Ed Haley, um, who was probably the most famous fiddler from down that way, and uh, Sherman had wound up being recorded on a few things. I think Mike Seeger had gone down and recorded Sherman Lawson at some point, and I had no idea you know, that this guy, I knew a bunch of Lawsons, but you know, I'd never met Sherman. I mean, he was long gone before I got around. Then I was at Glenville one year. And I looked over under the tree by the bank where all the old guys would sit. And there was an old fella sitting there, and he had to fiddle down the crook of his arm, and he was playing. And I was like, wow, I've never, who's that guy? You know, I've never seen him. And I went up to somebody and I said, you know, who is this fella? And they go, oh, he's some guy from over in Logan. And so when they said over in Logan, I'm thinking, well, they're talking about Logan, Ohio, because there's a Logan, Ohio. Because Logan, West Virginia is down. It's not over. And I asked another person. They said the same thing over in Logan. And I thought, well, okay, well. So everybody kind of cleared out, and I went over and sat down, and I said, I really – the guy wasn't playing anything extremely unusual. I mean, he's playing Ragtime Annie and Soldier's Joy and just kind of, you know, the kind of usual basket of tunes. Um, and then I was looking at a guy with him playing guitar. And I said, Mr. Harwood? And he looked up, and it was my old Boy Scout leader. And, and this guy was from Logan, you know, this old fiddle player. And, uh, and then I started recognizing these other, these people knew my dad and knew my sister. And, and Jim House was the fiddle player's name. And he lived up Switzer. He knew Sherman Lawson. He had played with him. And Jim was probably in his 70s at this point. And, uh, but anyway, so there were these guys around, but I just never, you know, I never knew them. Supposedly there was a guy up that lived up at the radio towers. We had these five big radio towers up above Logan, and he was a radio room equipment guy. And they called him Dirty John. And supposedly he lived up there and was a fantastic fiddle player. And I never met him either. You know, I hear about all these people after I was gone. But how did he get that name, Dirty John? I think he lived in his car up 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 at the radio towers. So I think he was just a dirty guy, <laughs> just physically dirty guy. So just for the listeners to understand, what's Glenville? Uh, this place where you met, okay. met yeah. these folks so, from Logan County. So Glenville, where is it located re- relative to Logan County? Yeah, so Glenville's kind of central West Virginia. Logan is southern West Virginia. Glenville's kind of the center part of the state. Um, not a coal mining area, but a Not oil so and much. Gas. There's oil and gas and farming. Yeah. It's a much more kind of agrarian um, focus. 
Uh, but a lot of oil and gas. It's kind of funny because my grandfather would have worked in that area and my uncle. And I've met people that knew my uncle, you know, through there because he would go out and procure right of ways for gas lines and he welded and did all that stuff. But so Glenville is the name of the town. There used to be the, I forgot, it was the Glenville Normal College. It was a teacher's college, state teacher's college. And so the, the West Virginia State Folk Festival is what occurs in Glenville on the, in the third Thursday in June is when it starts. Uh, but people just kind of call it Glenville. They usually don't say the West Virginia Folk Festival. Uh, and Patrick Gaynor started that. And Patrick was a professor here at the university, and he was from that area. And and Patrick um, taught uh, taught classes here. My mom actually took a class from him, and she, she told me that you know, it was a very enjoyable class. But he was good at trying to track the old songs down and realized that these – that these older songs and stories were kind of getting lost. And so he started this festival. And This is back uh, in like the 1950s. Yeah, the festival is probably 60 years old by now, 65 years old. So my, don't quote me on that, but it's it supposedly is the longest running folk festival in the country. That's It bills itself that way. And I forgot what this year's was. I was down there and um, I've got a shirt from last year, so I should remember it, but I don't. But it's been around for a while. And, and it really was the festival that was really about music. Um, and so many of the festivals today, there's so much going on. It's arts and crafts, and music's almost kind of a sidebar. And with this one, it was really, this is when when the real people would come out and play. You know, they had the, the three nights of square dance, and they built the, the, the dance floor on the street. And you know, three and four hour dances going on every evening, and just the music was just top notch. And and the old guys, you know, unfortunately, I kind of started going to Glenville right about the time. That, well, after some of the old timers had already gone, and right about the time that some of the others were kind of fading away. So, you know, I kind of feel like, boy, if I'd have gotten into this about five years earlier, I would have met a lot more characters. Um, but anyhow, it's it's just a fantastic festival, and it's kind of waxed and waned. Um, and it's, uh, there's been a lot of emphasis on really kind of getting the music back. Um, it's a, it's a blast. So how long did you play that fiddle that was Granddaddy Rose's? Well, I've still got it. I played it for a long time. I wasn't really repairing instruments at that point. I, I took up, um, instrument repair at some point. So I've worked on a lot of fiddles since then and, and, uh, built guitars and mandolins and haven't built any violins from scratch or any fiddles. I got lots of wood and it'll be my retirement uh, activity i think but i still got it played it for a long time and then you know how many fiddles have you owned probably a lot you know fiddle you're never satisfied with the one you have there's always a better one out there somewhere so you start buying fiddles and trading fiddles and i'll never get rid of that one but i haven't played it for a while i don't even know that it's strung up right now i know it's down in my shop and uh trying it was a pretty rough fiddle um but it was decent sounding as i started getting better and kind of thinking maybe i this fiddle's maybe limiting me a little bit in, in what I'm trying to get out of it. Was it uh, one of the German factory fiddles, or do you think? No, it was? you know, I think it was homemade. Um, it, it's kind of hard to tell. It doesn't. There's no label in it. Like, I mean, it wasn't a factory fiddle, but I don't know. It may have been a kit fiddle even that long ago. I'm not sure. It was. Uh, it's just got enough about. It. I mean, the bass bar was was not a separate bay you know it's just a carved in bass bar you know from the top and which is kind of a sign of a cheapo fiddle but it was uh it was sort of well done but it was neat you know that it was whoever granddaddy rose was i don't really really what relation he is to me but he was you know related to my mom somehow it's a great name 
Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there used to be a, a fiddler, from what I understand, uh, up around Asheville. Mm-hmm. Quill Rose was mm-hmm. his name. Oh, okay. Now, I love that name, Quill Rose. Quill, yeah. Yeah, back early 1900s, up through there. Yeah. So you are talking about fixing and working on instruments, and we were talking on the phone before I got here to West Virginia. Mm-hmm. You started telling me about this fellow who was a blind violin yeah, maker. Yeah, so the blind, the blind fiddle maker. So... To lead into that a little bit, I through Augusta through through Jerry, um, I was able to participate in one of their apprenticeship programs. I actually participated in several of those. So tell me a little bit more about what is Augusta. So it's Augusta Heritage Festival, and basically it's a um, it is a gathering to uh, to kind of keep the old arts alive. And, and, and so it's music, it's it's arts and crafts, it's stone masonry, it's paper making, it's broom making, it's wild foods, it's fiddle playing, it's banjo playing, it's fiddle making, it's guitar making. I mean, it, all the things people used to do. It's candle making. You know, it's it's any of those things that people used to not go to Walmart and buy. They did it themselves. And so you can go there and you can take classes in just about anything you can imagine. And it's been going on for a long time now. And you stay there for the week. It's a magical. You go experience. stay there for the week and take your class, and in the evening you're jamming or working on your craft. You're in the studio, you know, whatever you're, you happen to be doing. Square dances like crazy, storytelling events. Just you know, you're just immersed. And it's in the summer. It's five weeks in the summer, but they also have a spring mountain dulcimer week, and they have an October old time week that that are uh, a little more focused in on just those two arenas. So they have a. Um, they have an apprenticeship program where they'll try to pair up um, a younger artist with a master artist, whether that's musical or a craft or trade or something like that. And so I actually was fortunate to, to do three different apprenticeships. And, and what they do is they basically they provide the master artist with a little bit of a stipend and they provide the apprentice with some gas money. And, you know, you guys come up with a schedule and, and try to get together and pass on some some knowledge. Uh, and absorb some knowledge. So I was uh, fortunate to get with a fellow named Gilbert Stiles, who was an incredible builder of anything. And we worked on guitars. Gilbert built hundreds of guitars over his life. And then Bob Smacula, um, got to f- connect with Bob and kind of do phase two of my instrument building work. So that's really, Bob really taught me most of what I know about instrument repair. And then musically, there was a fellow named Leo Heron. And Leo is how we get to the blind fiddle maker. Uh, so Leo was a fiddler that lived uh, down in Marion County outside of Fairmont. And all Leo did his whole life was play the fiddle. He told me he worked on a milk truck one day. That was the only real job he ever had, and that was too hard. <laughs> and he could make a lot more money playing the fiddle in beer gardens, and he saw no need to do physical labor on a milk truck. Um, so, and Leo played on the radio, WMMN, which was a huge country music radio station. And he told me at the height of his playing that he was doing six live radio shows a day. You know, they'd start at four 30 in the morning and, and, and go all day long. And so I had heard about Leo just through the grapevine. Other, Oh, you ought to go down and meet Leo sometime. So I did go down, um, at one point, many, many years. I mean, Leo's been gone for 16, 17 years now. But I met him, went down and played, and immediately it was like, this guy's crazy good. Very different style than what I would hear at Augusta, though. Leo played a very noty kind of radio, Arthur Smith, 
Tommy Jackson kind of you know flashier style of play, and he wasn't playing old scratchy cross tunes and you know like Hammond's family things or what we associate with Central West Virginia. Uh, but it's a very radio influenced music. So I got to go back and study with Leo, and uh, we played for a while. And he knew that I fixed instruments, so he needed some instrument work done, and he didn't have two pennies to rub together. I mean, he lived in a tar paper shack by the railroad between the railroad track and the river and so he brought this fiddle out he actually had two of them and he he, they were very rough looking fiddles and and uh obviously handmade fiddles and he said oh these were made by a fellow named tommy doolittle and he said tommy doolittle was a blind fiddle maker here in in the area and so i was talking to jerry milnes back to jerry at augusta and jerry's you know folk historian and I said, oh, he was telling me about Tommy Doolittle. So Jerry hands me the Folk Songs of the South book, and John Harrington Cox, um, who was at WVU. And John Harrington Cox had interviewed Tommy Doolittle in about 1913, 14, somewhere around in there. And he mentions, uh, you know, he mentions Doolittle and, as a fiddler and that he was an instrument builder. Um, it's funny the description of him. He says he was a you know a sturdy man with a with a fine head. You know we don't describe people like that anymore. <laughs> but he he did not have any instruments with him at the time. So so John Harrington Cox did not see the fiddles, but he was just going on what Doolittle had said that he'd made a hundred fiddles and a bunch of dulcimers and some guitars and this that and the other. And so I went back and I asked Leo, there's no labels, no markings. I said, where'd you get these fiddles? And he said, well, my wife used to clean house for a woman out in Smithtown. And she had these three fiddles and she paid my wife. She knew I played. So that was part of the payment. He said, I had a child's fiddle and then two, these two large ones, you know, full-size ones. And what struck me about them was the fingerboard, because the fingerboard was this big wedged fingerboard like you would see on a Baroque instrument. There was no neck angle. All the angle came from the fingerboard. And it was a pine fingerboard, and it was, you know, a pine top. It wasn't a nice spruce top or anything, but they were really dark. Um, So anyhow, I fixed them up, and Leo played them for a while. He had another nicer uh, violin that was made up in New York. looked like an American instrument that was pretty nice. When Leo died, I, I knew nobody else in his family played. Um, and I asked some of his family. Jerry and I did a little DVD about his music. And so I was that put me in touch with some family members trying to get some stories. And I just, you know, what's going to happen to his fiddles? I mean, I would be interested in, in getting one of them since I'm one of his students. It'd be fun. And I certainly, you know, that's kind of a delicate subject. And they said, nah, you know, we're, gonna, we're just going to keep them and... Um, I said, well, yeah, that's fine. And last summer, so 15 years later, I get a call and this guy says, Chris, this is, this is Harold. I don't know if you remember me or not. And I said, yeah, Harold, I remember you. And he goes, do you still want those fiddles of Leo's? And I said, well, sure. And he said, well, just come over here and get them then. And so I drove, he lives here in town. So I drove over to his house and he had two fiddles in cases and then he had a brown, grocery bag just a paper grocery bag with three fiddles and pieces in there and he said just just take them they've just been sitting around here nobody's going to do anything with them i just assume somebody you know that's going to play them take them so i took them home and then he kept calling me have you fixed them up yet have you fixed them up yet have you fixed them up yet <laughs> said, no i haven't so just this spring i decided to go out and just all right i'm going to go look 
I hadn't really paid much attention. And I opened this one. I'm like, dang on it. That's one of those Tommy do. That's the one Leo. He had two of them. And one of them had gotten away while Leo was still alive. Um, I'm not sure what happened to it. The kids, when he had sold, I never saw that. But so here's this one. I was like, that's the Tommy Doolittle fiddle. I'm going to fix that thing up. So I literally just set it up the way it was. The strings that were on it when Leo had it, and I snapped the bridge in place. And I drug a bow across. I'm like, wow, that's a pretty good sounding fiddle. I've since done a little work on it. Um, So over the years, I've kind of tried to find out who this Tommy Doolittle guy was. And to no avail. I mean, I just found what was written in Harrington Cox's book, and, and nobody seemed to know anything else. So again, early this spring, I started looking on the internet again, and I found some other reference in a dulcimer, uh, like a treatise on dulcimers, and they mentioned Doolittle, but it was the same reference. Nothing new. So I gave it up, didn't didn't think anything else. Then I get online, I'm looking around, oh, I'll do a cemetery search. So I found his headstone. So I found there's Tommy Doolittle's headstone. It's down at Mount Zion Cemetery. I found his death certificate. Indeed, it said he was blind. I decide, well, I'll start looking at just Doolittle's in in the area, I couldn't find a lot, so I found a Doolittle genealogy page, you know, just on ancestry or something. Found a contact, I emailed a person, said, you know, this is kind of crazy, but I'm trying to find information on Tommy Doolittle. Guy emails me back, I think I know somebody that knows something about him. So I get another email from another fella, and in it, none of them knew Tommy Doolittle, but they knew of him. And in this one email, there was an excerpt that was like a little bit of a story about Doolittle. I'm like, all right, they're, they're quoting something, you know, where is that? Couldn't find it just last week. I mean, this is all kind of very, you know, kind of funny. Just last week, I decided to get online and just, I'm just going to look Doolittle again. And I did blind violin maker and boom, here comes this hit blind violin maker makes good. And it's talking about Tommy Doolittle in West Virginia. And it's, and it's a, uh, it's an index to a thing called the West Virginia Review, which was some publication back in the 20s and 30s. I guess a state magazine. So I get on there and I can't find the article. So I email somebody at the library here. I say, you know, can can you find this article? I can't find it. I don't even know what it's in. Ten minutes later, she sent Here's the article. And there's a picture of Tommy Doolittle with a mandolin and holding a fiddle. And there's a guitar. And there's this two-page story about Tommy Doolittle. And I'm like, all right. And they're talking about he made over 200 instruments. And it just gives some details here and there. It says he lived at 512 East Ferry Street in Fairmont. So I'm getting on Google Maps and finding East Ferry Street. And like, my gosh, I'm going to go knock on the door, you know. And Well, there's no 512 East Ferry Street. So I'm on street view on Google, walking up and down the street, and they don't go above 310, you know? And I'm like, okay, did East Ferry Street, did it get chopped off? What happened? So I'm getting a little frustrated on that. I'm trying to find information about the author. Can't find anything there. So four days later, I'm at the Springs Festival, which you've played at in in Pennsylvania, a little Mennonite fall festival. And we're sitting there, it's freezing cold, rainy, 40 degrees, raining like crazy. We're sitting inside playing with Ron Mullinex, who you know. And a lot of people are walking by and going, boy, that's a good sounding fiddle. It was the do little fiddle I took. That's a nice sounding fiddle. That's a nice sounding fiddle. So this one guy stops and he's like, that's a really nice sounding fiddle, you know, and we're chatting. And 
we just kind of get, he goes, he goes, you know, I just about didn't come over here today. So I lost my wife last year and we've been coming to this festival for so many years. And I got up and today it was rainy and I'm just glad I came. This is some really good music. He said, you know, I used to promote old time music and country music a lot. And he said, I don't play, but I always promoted it. And I said, well, where are you from? He said, well, I, I'm from Fairmont, West Virginia. And I said, oh, that's neat. And I said, well, did you know Leo Heron? He said, yeah, I knew Leo. He was a great fiddle player and blah, blah, blah. And we went on and I said, well, you know what? I said, supposedly this fiddle was made by a guy in Fairmont. And I said, there was a blind fiddle maker named Tommy Doolittle. And the look on this guy's face, he just stopped and he goes, Tommy Doolittle was my great uncle. And I said, you're kidding me. And he said, nope, he was my mom's uncle. He said, he lived with us on the farm. He said, I can take you right to his house. And I said, well, I thought he lived at Ferry Street. He said, he never lived in downtown Fairmont. He lived out on the farm a mile from where I live today. And he goes, my sister's got pictures of him. I've got pictures of him. We've got furniture he made. I said, I don't have any of his instruments. And I said, well, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't, Leo just told me. And I said, you know, Leo told me he got him from a woman in Smithtown. And he said, well, Tommy's sister lived in Smithtown. So, you know, the, the chills are going up and down my spine at that point and up and down his spine, too. I mean, of all the days and all the people and, you know, boom, here we go. So I've since contacted him and we've talked more and, you know, I'm going to head down there and take the fiddle back out to the old homestead and sit on the porch and play a few tunes. And But it's just kind of uh, interesting. And his sister lives in Colorado and she's got pics. She's kind of a family historian. So she's got pictures and um he, you know, so we're trying to kind of dig up some other instruments. I mean, if he made a hundred violins and mandolin, they've got one mandolin that he made and then some furniture. Um, so as far as I know, you know, it's, 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 it's the best story I've got on that fiddle, but I thought that was kind of interesting. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it doesn't really come better than that. It doesn't. I love it serendipity really and that, that's a good one. Now, you're a guy who works on instruments. Mm -hmm. So what thoughts do you have about how would you go at it if you were blind? How I, Yeah, I have no idea. And, and this is one rough-looking fiddle. You know, I mean, it, it is not a pretty fiddle. Um, so he went blind at 19. I don't know, evidently suddenly. So I don't know if he had some viral, you know, it, it's um, – his dad was a house builder and he was working with his dad and just at 19, just all of a sudden, you know, went blind and took solace in his play in the, the fiddle. And in this article I referenced earlier, a guy had sent me an email, another Doolittle, you know, on the genealogy page. And it was talking about, um, the, the person was talking about sitting in the dark shop with Tommy while he worked on instruments and played and, and, you know, it was just no light and perfectly dark. And he would sit there and listen to this. So I don't know if he played before that. It's unclear to me. Was he always a fiddle player? Um, because he did play as well. There's a fellow named Joe Coe in Fairmont. Joe's probably 95, 96 now. And Joe remembers hearing Tommy Doolittle play in, uh, in Fairmont. But I don't know if he if he played later or if he played as a young man. You know, if he already kind of knew if he if he knew what the instrument was and was just going from memory and feel, or if it was something brand new that he took up. So I'm, I'm kind of assuming he must have already had familiarity with the with the instrument before he went blind. Um, yeah. How how I mean, 
It's interesting, you know, when, when you're working on an instrument, you do rely on feel a lot because your eyes will trick you, especially if you're, um, you'll use shadows. And if you think you've got a spot smoothed out or something even, all you have to do is close your eyes and feel it. And you'll know, you know, because you can sit there and look at it and convince yourself that something is symmetrical and that you've got the taper on the fingerboard correct. And all you have to do is close your eyes and run your fingers down the fingerboard and you'll tell if, you know, if, if it's symmetrical or not, if it's even. So maybe it wasn't, you know, maybe it was a lot more intuitive. Um, now, in the article, the author does say that Doolittle was asking him about the finishes. You know, he's, be honest with me, I don't know how good of a job I do at the finishes because that's just something he was saying he couldn't really tell. Um, but the wood pieces, you know, you could you could tell, and you could tell if you've got things lined up. And and you're talking by feel, but then again, also hearing is so essential yeah. in making a violin, right? Because you're yeah. you're tapping, you're toning each piece of wood, right, the top and the bottom. Yeah. And supposedly that the author references in the article well is you know his kind of special treatment for the backs, and that was kind of interesting because you know, he said it's his well guarded secret, his sound post and his backs. He does something to them. I have no idea if the sound post that I've got in there is an original sound post or not. Um, actually, I know the one that's in there now is not because I carved a new sound post, but um, or fit a new sound post. But there was one in there. And then the fellow I just met, who was his great nephew, talked about how he would keep his wood stored in the creek. And you know, and they talk about Stradivari, and the Cremona makers would keep them kind of in the canal. I mean, they they kept them wet. And you know, maybe that was part of whatever was in the water was also getting into the wood. And, you know, that's kind of one of the one of the explanations for the great tone of these these woods. Um, but he was just saying, yeah, he said, you know, Tommy would keep the he keep the backwood in the creek until he's you know ready to use it, and then he'd get it out and kind of let it dry. And so he didn't he didn't store it dry. So maybe that was his special treatment. I don't know. You know, having lived in Central West Virginia. And having moved there in 1970, one of the great delights for me, because, you know, it was hard for people. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't you know, want to romanticize that life. People were struggling and there wasn't much money around for a lot of people, especially out of town, people out on the farms. And yet you had that old tradition, you know, this, these families have been farming for years and really had a, a sense of what they were doing with that. Then you had other people who just sort of moved around and rented places for a little bit and but you had these characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had these unique human beings. And the community seemed to understand how unique human beings could fit in mm-hmm. and made a place for them. And I can almost imagine this uh, Doolittle f- character. Yeah. You know, people in the neighborhood saying, you know, there's an old blind fiddler. But, you know, they let him on the farm. He, you know, it just did what he did there. Yeah. And, and they saw that as a treasure for their community. Right. He played. He did. He built furniture. Evidently, I mean, he would build anything, it sounded like. And, and um, so the fellow I just met, he, they've got some furniture. And he was telling me he was at an auction. And there was a, another Doolittle chest at an auction that was just destroyed. I mean, it hadn't been taken. It had been set out on a porch or whatever forever. But he'd heard, you know, the, the, the person having the auction had advertised they had a Doolittle Tommy Doolittle you know, dresser or chest of drawers or something like that. Didn't reference any any uh, other woodworking in, in these articles I was talking about. It was all about the music. 
But yeah, so you know, he kind of he had a place there, and this family evidently is all singers as well. Huge, big family singing tradition. So I don't know if if Tommy Doolittle sang as well, and I don't know what kind of fiddler he was. I mean, I haven't there's you know I haven't talked to Joe Coe about it. Actually, I heard through Mark Crabtree that Joe remembers Tommy Doolittle playing on the streets of Fairmont. So I I, I need to get to Joe and kind of see you know what what he play what kind of stuff did he play was it playing like leo and the other kind of north central west virginia fiddlers who were real heavily influenced by the radio um you know by that kind of flashier you know kind of nashville arthur smith type of fiddling or did he play some other some other piece going back to leo towards the end of his life so he's making some money playing the fiddle on the radio and for dances here and there at the end of his life he doesn't have much you're saying no he yeah. never had much. He never no. had much. I yeah. mean, he was making probably better money than he would have done anything else, but not a lot. He did quote me a number one time. He said back in the 40s and 50s, he goes, I could make $300 a weekend. He said, I could knock down $300 a weekend playing beer gardens. And he said, so why would I want to work on a milk truck? And uh, so $300 a weekend probably wasn't bad money back in the 50s, right? Do you think he uh, had any regrets? Towards the end of his life, did he take in that path? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, he was happy as a bug in a rug playing the fiddle. He was a great guitar player as well. And, and what was funny about Leo, um, he could, he was very serious. I mean, he, he took his music very seriously. And he would stop. The first time I met him, I was with another fiddler who was a pretty good fiddler. N- nothing fancy, but, but okay. And I was playing guitar. I was like, I'm, I'm not even taking a fiddle. I'm just going to go back this guy up and see what I can learn. And I'm a pretty decent guitar player. And so Leo enjoyed having somebody that could stay with him on a guitar. And every now and then I'd play something that he, you know, now you need to move here. Because he did a lot of polkas. And sometimes I wouldn't get the chord change right away. And he would stop right in the middle of the tune and tell me what I needed to do. And then he would pick right back up. I mean, if he was on an eighth note, that's where he would start. It was It was uncanny. How he could just start and stop. He'd never give you any taters or anything else. You know, he'd just stop in the middle of the eighth note, tell you the chord, and just pick it right back. It's like he lifted the needle up and put it back down on the record. <laughs> and then the other guy was with me, was trying to kind of get a little fancy. And that was getting Leo's ire up a little bit. You know, so Leo decided, all right, well, you want to play that game? <laughs> I'll go up into fourth position and play it. And, you know, he, I mean, he could play in any position on the fiddle. He was doing double stops like crazy. And, and he had this way, and even Jerry Milnes and I laughed about this. When he would end a, end a tune, he would slow the bow down. You know, a lot of fiddlers have these kind of unique ways they would end a tune. Melvin Wine used to just go, you know, and just stop, you know, like putting the brakes on a car. And Leo would slow it down. And he would, and I've never been able to emulate it. So he would get to the end of tune and, you go da 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 da, but it was so smooth and rhythmic and and it's again it's almost like you had just unplugged the record player and it was just going, <laughs> and he would do that so smoothly. <laughs> and Jerry and I just look at each other. How does he do that? I mean, it was still had the same rhythm and the same and the lift, bounce, but the it lift, was just yeah, the yeah. lilt. Yeah, but it just slowed down to nothing. And it was he was, but I don't think Leo had any regrets. Uh, I mean, he never voiced any to me. He he lived a pretty rough life um, in terms of drinking, and and he made no bones about that fact. I mean, the first time I went to see him, you know, 
the advice was don't take any alcohol with you when you go see him. And, uh, and then he had, he'd cleaned up, you know, I honestly can't remember if he kind of got religion or if he just decided I've had enough of this. But when I was doing the apprenticeship with him, he was sober as the nice and, and, uh, much nicer <laughs> mm-hmm. and it smiled a lot more at that point, but I don't think he had any regrets. He, he never voiced any to me anyway, but I don't think he had an easy life. Let's listen now to Chris Haddocks play a tune on his violin, a violin made by Tommy Doolittle. So this is a tune, uh, this was Delbert Hughes, who was from down in a little community of Jody, which is down in Kanawha County. And I'm playing this on a fiddle made by Tommy Doolittle, blind fiddle maker in Fairmont, West Virginia. So it's called Davey Come Home and Act Like You Ought To. thoughts about the physical violin itself what you've learned either working on them or playing them what is it about the violin what is it about the violin yeah i mean the question is you know why why is it like it is and i ask a guy there's a fellow down in richmond that is a well-trained violin maker and when i was first getting into it i would look why do we cut the bridge this way you know why do we do this this way and he just said because after 400 years that's what we know works you know we just quit tinkering with it just just do it just it's perfected and and you know that's kind of hard sometimes but when you look at we're in this golden age of instrument building i mean there's so many custom builders of guitars and violins and every instrument and there's still a guitar is a guitar i mean it's there's not a whole lot changing you know i mean there's not a whole lot of really radical new guitar styles maybe some new materials but if somebody makes a fiddle, they're still copying a Strad, you know, or a Motti or a Guarneri. I mean, it's still that thing. We've kind of arrived, and it's not going to be any better. And that's that's kind of you feel like you're throwing the towel in at some point, and like, well, gosh, can't I improve on this somehow? Can I tweak it a little bit? No, maybe not. Yeah, maybe it just it is what it is, and that's 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 what it's arrived at, and just. And some of my more fanciful moments, and they come occasionally, not that often. I look at the instrument and I wonder, is there some spiritual being mm-hmm. that has that shape? Right. And it just exists. Right. And we interact with it. We make an arrangement. Mm-hmm. And it asks for something from us 
that we're willing to give or not willing to give. And right. this gets into the whole devil's, you know, stuff. Sure, yeah. And uh, but it gives us things back. And sometimes, you know, I, I have interviewed some viol, uh, violin players who'll say, you know, sometimes I'll pick up that violin. I know it's going to be ornery. It's going to just fight me. And, and as if it has its own personality, its, will, yeah. its own will. Yeah, you've got to kind of give in to what it's. It, it it allows you to do something. You know, we do that. We find fiddles that we. I mean, I can set up. Ten fiddles exactly the same to where, you know, okay, I've cut the bridge the same, the string height's the same, the fingerboard radius is the same, the string length, you know, everything's the same except the box that they sit on. And, you know, they, they kind of look the same, but maybe these. And even with that, they, they can feel very different. And, you know, and I have to almost go back and go, wait a minute, is the string spacing the same? Yep, it's exactly like the other five. And the, the arch of the bridge is exactly the same, and it's the same strings, and it's the same neck angle, and it's the blah, 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 blah. It's all the same. And why does this one, why can I play this one and not this one? Why can I play that passage on this instrument and not play it on that instrument when physically everything is the same? And the bow, you know, the bow is a whole nother. It's really where the life is, right? I mean, you get this bow and fiddle matched up. Your favorite bow might be your favorite bow for a certain instrument, and then for another instrument, another bow works better, that combination. Um, yeah, so we get into the whole, all the, you know, the golden triangle and all the perfect, you know, geometry and everything. And it, it, I'm fascinated by that, and but, it, you know, it kind of blows me away as well. And just, it is what it is, you know. They, they, they arrived, I mean. Well, it's like, you know, when my children were born, we have this idea that it's all either nurture or nature, mm. right? It's either their genetics, which would be the quality of the wood and the violin, right? Or it's the environment in which they were right. raised. It's how you cut the bridge and put the strings on, <laughs> how you treat it, right? And yet when my children were born, every one of them, I looked at them, and there was something already going on. They mm-hmm. came in with something. Oh, yeah. What you call it, a soul or a destiny or something. But they were not a white or blank piece of paper. All right. So you wonder about these violins if they have some other uh, yeah. side to them that's in another dimension, you know, of you know dark energy and dark matter. What do they say? It could be as much as eighty percent or more right. of of existence uh, that we just simply don't perceive. So well, how do we know what science? You know, we look at now. There's so much more on. Do plants have feelings? You know, and and. How distant plants, you know, I can't even, I'll butcher this completely, but they were, you know, doing in a stand in a forest and they were, you know, doing something to trees over here and these trees over here were responding. You know, they were measuring a a response to an activity that was in a completely, not even, you know, a tree in the same root system. I mean, we know they have that, that, you know, you get these big aspen groves that really is one big giant tree, you know, with thousands of trees being part of it. And, and it's like your nervous system. I mean, these, these things communicate. It was with fungi is what it was. That's what they were measuring, exactly. the largest organisms. And they were, and that's how they kind of started connecting. Like if they, one tree is, is starting to fail a little bit, it will literally pull vitality out of another tree. Right. It could be miles away. Right. And bring it over to that yeah. other tree. And, and tomato, you know, plants, when they, you know, when they get cut, kind of measuring these physiological responses and, so you know maybe the maybe this wood what's what was going on in that tree's life right what what's kind of in there um, start sound like Scientology now right? you know what are the the engrams or whatever the Scientology stuff is you know what happened what was going on when that tree was uh, oh, yeah. 
you know, was it cut down gently or roughly? I don't know. You know, did that. <laughs> it's like the Stephen King movie was made. You know, like Christine was that the violin that was made that will take your soul and turn, right. turn you into an alcoholic. Just don't play that yeah. particular fiddle. But it it's is the fiddle's fault. <laughs> it's and and who played the fiddle? You know, we all want that before you, we yeah. personify these instruments and we we imagine these situations the instruments have been in and the tunes that have come out of these instruments and you know i mean we we really romanticize it and and i think it's part of you know it's part of for me it's wanting to have this connection with things that maybe i've never really had a connection to you know i I tell folks that i've i have a nostalgia for a family farm that i've never known i mean i i never grew up on a farm the family farms were long gone before i came around and I kind of resent that, you know, and I feel like I, I should be living on one of those farms, you know, and I, and I think about it a lot and I kind of dream about it and fantasize about it. And it's almost like I'm nostalgic for something I never really even knew. And I think we kind of do that through instruments as well. Wow. You know, here's a 200 year old fiddle. Just, I wonder who played this. You know, I bet this was played during some big event in you know, the Revolutionary Wars. <laughs> you know, I mean, we get these. Yeah, on, the, on the night before battle. Right, right. You know, the, yeah, this, Civil this, War. We like that. I mean, I think that is this larger, uh, this desire to be connected to something bigger than ourselves. Yeah. And maybe we are. Yeah. So, anyhow. <laughs> we could go on all night. We could. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. It's been been fun. Been fun. Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. To learn more about the Rosin the Bow project, and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. I would also like to thank the West Virginia State Division of Tourism for helping set up our visit to Morgantown, West Virginia. They're great people, and it was a great help. And before I say goodbye, let me recite a poem by Edgar Lee Masters titled Fiddler Jones in memory of Leo Heron. The earth keeps some vibration going there in your heart, and that is you. And if people find you can fiddle, why, fiddle you must for all your life. What do you see? A harvest of clover or a meadow to walk through to the river? The winds in the corn, you rub your hands, for beeves hereafter ready for market. Or else you hear the rustle of skirts like the girls when dancing at Little Grove. To Cooney Potter, a pillar of dust or whirling leaves met ruinous drought. They looked to me like redhead Sammy stepping it off to tour allure. How could I till my forty acres, not to speak of getting more, with a medley of horns, bassoons, and piccolos stirred in my brain by crows and robins and the creak of a windmill? And I never started to plow in my life that someone did not stop in the road and take me away to a dance or picnic. I ended up with forty acres. I ended up with a broken fiddle and a broken laugh and a thousand memories 
and not a single regret.